Hello and welcome. This is the Singapore Institute of Management podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're talking about exponential data. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Gillam, CEO of Health Labs, a discovery automation company for big data and machine intelligence models. Michael is coming here to Singapore for the Singularity University event to share his thoughts on thriving and surviving in the age of big data. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Graham. It's great to have you here. Exponential data. Maybe we can start, put that on the table and explain a little bit about that. And also, I guess, you know, you've said some interesting points about, you know, if you're not a software company, you're going to be replaced by a competitor who is. So it's not all good news, I guess, exponential data. Maybe you can explain what it's about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as everyone knows, the uh, sort of amount of data out there is in increasing exponentially. Uh, just in healthcare alone, the amount of data is doubling every 1.5 years. And uh, and so so as a result, uh, a lot of this data is building up and it's not being analyzed. And mm. Forrester did a study, they found that uh, 63% of data in companies is unanalyzed. It's just kind of building up there. They actually call it uh, dark data, wow. kind of like dark matter. And, uh, and not only that, but uh, MIT did a study and they found that 40% of companies are having trouble uh, finding and hiring data scientists to analyze that data. Mm. And, uh, and that there's a shortage of people to manage, just in the United States alone, to manage that data of about 1.5 million managers in the data space. And so as a result, this data is building up and there's no signs of help or hope that our human force would be able to conquer and, and, and do something and convert that data into something useful. Wow. That data that you shared with me, more data points, is that, uh, I mean, it's phenomenal. 63% of data in organizations is unanalyzed. Is that because just the sheer volume or, as you say, the lack of skills? What's the cause? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's interesting. One uh, hospital system that we worked with, we found no less than 300 different data islands, like little data mm. silos, did not talk to each other. And uh um, and so, and we, what we found was that the staff, the nurses and doctors sort of scurried from, from data silo to data silo, and they had to sort of assemble all that data in their, in their heads in order to sort of put together the, the patient, patient mm. picture. And it's not just, uh, it's not just healthcare, it's multiple other industries as well, um, where we find this sort of data silo, siloing problem. There's a, <clears throat> there's this great example of a, of a picture that was taken in the 1950s, and it shows all these people at desks, you know, sort mm. of a big, big, big office place, and they're all sort of typing on typewriters and things. And uh, and it's been estimated, uh, someone said that the data output of everyone on that entire floor that you see in that picture is essentially equivalent to a single cell in an Excel spreadsheet. Mm. And, uh, and yet today, if you were to take that picture, what are those people working in? A lot of those people are working in Excel. Yeah. And, uh, and so we are creating these little sort of data silos everywhere. Um, and, uh, and they kind of spread throughout the organization. And so as a result, these, these data silos just sort of build up and they just become dark data that are unanalyzed or mm. you know, almost like different filing cabinets all across the uh, organization. Are we at a stage where we need to declare data bankruptcy because we're just overwhelmed by the data? I mean, how are organizations coping with this? Yeah, so one of the, I mean, one of the sort of <clears throat> new developments that are occurring or sort of the realizations that people have is that uh, uh, there's value in just creating a data lake. Um, and this concept is you just pour everything in the data lake. We used to think that it's really, uh, and, and, and it's often believed even today, that, uh, that data standards are necessary 
in order, you have to decide what standard you're going to store the data in before you start importing the data and trying to organize it. And the crazy thing about that is that, uh, you know, you may have heard the phrase, the great thing about uh, data standards is that there are just so many to choose from, yeah. uh, or just standards in general. Yeah. And so the result, if, you know, any project in, in companies today, you can bind up, if, if someone starts the project and says, well, first we have to decide the standard, you can tie up a project for hours, days, weeks, months, just trying to decide that particular mm. question. And, uh, and uh, what it turns out is you don't have to actually make that decision. Uh, you can sort of pour all that data into a data lake and then use a technique called late binding. Hmm. Le- so a data lake, for those who haven't come across the term yet, what exactly is that? I mean, it's a great visualization of what it could be, but help us understand what it actually is. Yeah, yeah. So often often data lakes are, are places into which you pour data, and the data, uh, the lakes are, for lack of a better term, they're and hopefully not using this term too much, they're data-centric or data, right. maybe the word is data agnostic. And so I'll, I'll make the argument that if you create a data lake and all it knows how to do is store numbers, uh, text, and things called binary streams, that you can throw almost, you can store almost anything in that data lake. And, uh, and so you can just keep filling it up. And later, when you decide what it is that you actually uh, what standard you need that data to be in, well, then you can apply um, that particular standard and create, for lack of a better term, a data pond, mm-hmm. or some people call it data marts, um, which, is a, which is a sort of a subsection where you've transformed some of that data into a smaller set that's exactly in the format that you need. Mm. So, so does that sort of take the first initial step in breaking down the silos? I mean, you mentioned the hospital, for example, where, you know, it's only going to get worse, isn't it? That unless they actually address that, there's going to be this massive, you know, exponential growth in silos and it, within that exponential data itself, right? So so stepping towards a lake is the first, sort of, it's a mindset shift almost in a sense. This is not my data, but this is everyone's data. Yeah, I think that's a, a great, great way of phrasing it. Yeah, the um, um, you know one of the principles we talk about is uh, is this concept of late binding, and uh, um, a good example of that is you know how many times have you been in a project where during the course of your, the project you notice that your knowledge grows so much that by the time you finish the project, when you look back, people will say, you know what, if we were to do this project again, we could do it in a third of the time. Yeah, and yet if you look at how we make our decisions. We make almost all of our decisions early, early, early in the project when our knowledge is the lowest. Hmm. And the idea is we, we make those decisions early in order to mitigate risk. We, we think we're mitigating risk. But in fact, what we often get is lock-in. How many times have you been in a project where six months in, someone says, oh, I have an idea. And everybody sort of kind of looks at them and says, why didn't you have that idea six months ago? <laughs> but now it's too late, right? Mm-hmm. We already made these decisions. And so, uh, so as a result, in this sort of you know, exponential world where there are new opportunities and the future is unsure, uh, it becomes increasingly important to sort of delay every possible decision that you can mm-hmm. possibly delay as long as you possibly can delay it so it matches your increasing knowledge curve and your increasing opportunity curve. In fact, uh, Mike, I learned this sort of principle from my mentors, uh, Dr. Craig Fiat, Dr. Mark Smith, Dr. Jonathan Handler, uh, great colleagues. And, and, you know, they used to say that, um, you know, the cops, the smartest college campuses today, they apply this late binding principle um, for, uh, for landscape design. Uh, you know, you've probably seen where you, you, know, you lay out sidewalks and where do people always seem to walk? 
it's across the grass, mm-hmm. some sort of cutting corners and things. Well, apparently the smartest college campuses today, what do they do? Um, they, uh, they essentially um, lay down all the sod, let the students walk wherever they want, um, and then lay down uh, after they've worn these paths, then they go in and they put in the sidewalks for the students. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> these pristine lawns. And, uh, and so you can apply that same principle to yeah. sort of your, your data approaches where you delay these choices on standards. You just create the data lake, put all the data in there, and later decide where to put your data sidewalks, so to speak. Yeah, I love that analogy. And I'm sure that's going to get used again. And it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned, Michael, as well, earlier about you know, 40% of companies lacking the, the skills or hiring data, you know, having a challenge hiring data scientists. And then, you know, you talk about this mindset as well, which sounds like, you know, it, it's more than just having access to the skill. It's a mindset shift in, you know, a corporate would very much adopt a top-down planning process. Yet what you're talking about is sort of delayed decision-making, which is, is very agile, isn't it? And it's sort of a very much, you know, almost like a startup would do like a minimum viable product testing, you know, the minimum version of the product. And let's just kind of roll with that. It seems like, you know, what you may be unearthing is, is a need for a different kind of mindset to deal with these projects as well. Like exponential data forces us to get out of that very sort of top-down planning process within corporations. I mean, is it more than just the skills of being an analyzed data that's going to make this work? Yeah, I, I love that that example of sort of it's it's agile methodology. I think you're exactly right, and it's agile methodology applied to not just your organization, but it's agile methodology applied to data. And uh, and so that's that's obviously one of the first sort of foundational pieces. This idea of, of sort of late binding and sort of data centricity, and uh, and I think there are other sort of mindsets that have to shift as well, or that are important to shift or are valuable to shift. Um, one another one is this concept of it's the data scientist's job. Mm-hmm. This idea that there's a small group of sort of elite people and they're the data people. Um, one of my there this this is a a um, uh, a belief that's kind of getting overturned in multiple different companies. Um, one of my favorite examples of a company doing that is probably uh, probably Netflix. Hmm. Um, Netflix kind of came to the realization they wanted to raise the sort of data literacy across the entire organization, not just the data science people. And uh, and they they realized that there's a whole group of sort of millennials coming into the world who. Um, who basically have computer skills and are very comfortable with computers. And there's a lot of us who had, you know, courses in college in computers. And yet the amount that we use them in our daily jobs is virtually zero. And, uh, and yet I talked about that picture in the 1950s of all these people sort of, you know, working inside Excel. One of the questions that organizations have started to ask is, well, how do we begin to automate all this work that we used to been used to used to have been doing manual um, because if we don't have enough data scientists and we don't have enough data literacy, well, we're going to have to use automation to tackle some of that. And uh, and so the way that they tackled it was uh, deploying um, a platform called Jupyter Notebooks that allow people to have their own little website. And they go, every single employee gets their own. And they can go to that site and they can type, start writing computer code. And it supports over 100 different languages. And so it meant that if you there was an ambitious intern in some you know particular department uh, that wanted to you know try even uh, computer programming that's a comp- as complex as some of the AI work out there like TensorFlow and and others, 
they can code right there in that sort of web page. Well, what was what they found was people started to automate the work that they were formally doing manually in Excel or other different programs. And then because they had a sort of website, it was up in the cloud, they could share it with other people in the organization. And so other people, they would share those notebooks and then they would add additional code to automate their particular piece. And before long, you had these sort of pipelines, these long pipelines of code that people would automate you know, different parts of their, their workflow. And now today, um, over 30% of the company is using these uh, Jupyter notebooks for various parts of their work to automate what they were previously doing um, manually. And, uh, and it's not just the data scientists, it's mm. sales, it's operations, it's marketing people who are uh, essentially using these new tools to automate their work. I'll just put a, uh, I'll just put an exclamation mark on that point. Um, you may have heard the fastest uh, growing company, software company in history. Uh, it, a new record was recently set. Um, so it wasn't, it's not a Facebook, it's not Google. Uh, anymore. It's not Twitter, Microsoft, or any of those. It's now a Romanian company called UiPath. Mm. And what they focus on is uh, robotic process automation, um, where they help companies automate what they formerly did manually. Wow. I mean, these are great insights, Michael. And I think that, you know, the, the, the question I would have for example, that you, you've mentioned, even going back to Netflix as an example, that it took a an outsider to come into an industry and apply a different way of thinking about that data problem rather than, you know, that's the data department's problem. This is everybody's challenge, right? You know, you, you wonder about the DNA of the organization. I guess where I'm getting to with the question is, is this available to everybody? I mean, if you go back in the old days... Um, you know, IBM was a mainframe company, but Microsoft was a software company. And it so happened that it took a software company to write software rather than a mainframe company. And similarly with Netflix, you know, they're, they're disrupting their industry because they don't have that legacy, which is sort of holding them back in how you deal with data. And I bring that forward to your specialist area, which is in sort of healthcare and, you know, in med tech, for example. And you look at the hospitals and I wonder, you know, your your average hospital is sort of built around a model which has been around since Florence Nightingale's days, right? It's sort of, you know, that very sort of centralized healthcare. And even you look at hospital wards, they haven't really changed for a hundred years. So, you know, I wonder about um, companies like, I mean, organizations like that and having to take on board exponential data are, are they equipped to do this you know or will it take an outsider to come in and just redesign the whole thing from scratch and say okay we're going to build it around this challenge this problem and then sort of bolt ev all the bricks and uh, you know that going to make it happen around that yeah i think it's a it's a great question and it's it's a it's a question i think that companies you know grapple with are grappling with you know, even today, in some ways, it's an existential challenge to these companies whether they can make that make that transition. And uh, um, and it's and it's fascinating because if you think of some of the traditional companies, uh, you know, traditional iron or big iron companies that you might think of, like even if you think about IBM, their very first product, they're a hundred year old company. Their very first product was a, a scale, uh, mm. a, weigh, a, a weighing scale, and uh, and. You know, they've had to reinvent themselves over and over again for the last hundred hundred years. And uh, and what's particularly interesting is Gina Jeannie Rometty, the CEO, just last year um, made an announcement that of eighty billion dollars in revenue, forty six percent or almost half, forty billion dollars 
came from products and services that they had just invented in the last three years. Wow. And, and so what's, and so what's remarkable about that is, uh, so one of the, one of the areas in which they've been doing some work is, uh, in the blockchain, um, you know, the foundation of some of these cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, uh, and so blockchain obviously is just one technology of many, but the question is how many blockchain projects does IBM have going on today? Mm. And the answer is, uh, roughly 500 mm. blockchain projects. And then the next question is, okay, how many of those projects do we think are going to fail? Hmm. Maybe almost all of them, maybe 499, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and yet if just one or two of those blockchain projects succeed, these will form the bricks of the foundation of the next sort of 40 billion that they will, they will invent going forward. And yet how many of our companies today are doing 500 experiments in a particular area or technology and expect 499 or more of those yeah. to fail? And, uh, and so the question is, you know, how, uh, you know, is it, is it in these companies DNA and can they change their DNA to start to experiment in this way, uh, rapidly? Mm. Uh, I mean, that's, that's phenomenal data. If the IBM data you said is, is true, I mean, 50% in the last three years, it just goes to show that, I mean, you can't write off these companies for sure if it's in their data to change, right? So just because they're large and seemingly unwieldy doesn't mean they cannot change. So firstly, I'm just wondering in, in that sort of context, you know, bringing it here to Asia, um, there's a lot of interest these days about big data, especially with the companies coming out of China. We have some great examples, obviously Alibaba, Tencent, and SenseTime, the, the visual recognition company which I believe has gone on record as saying it's, or they've been quoted as saying they have 2 billion faces in their database, which is not even 2 billion people in China. But it's just interesting that the amount of data these companies are gathering and grabbing the headlines as well, because there's always that very sort of dystopian view of what they'll do with the data as well. And even here in Singapore, and you'll be aware when you come out as well, is that, you know, Grab, which are the local Uber here they have um you know very much a, a large data footprint and you know who would have thought a taxi company could be one of the biggest payments companies in the region right i mean it's just unthinkable like 10 years ago it you know when you when you look at globally at how companies are adopting big data what can you sort of like you know from your vantage point see are there sort of any trends or any regions getting it right or any sort of country i mean like what's coming out of china do they seem to have a different take on how to use data are they applying it differently compared to say in the us and so on uh, i can i can talk about one particular trend that i i like that i that i'm seeing um and that's around uh data privacy and the sort of changes that are occurring and there's almost like a copernican shift uh, that's that's occurring in data, where the center of the data universe used to be um, companies. It used to be, you know, if you think about healthcare, it was the hospital, and you would have to interact with you know the hospital to go get your medical records, or you know the the, the company itself has your data and you can't can't get it out. But there's this Copernican shift where the center of the data universe is moving more towards the citizen where the citizens themselves own the data. And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll just give an example. Um, <clears throat> if you think about it today, advertisers, if you think about all the advertisers out there, right now those advertisers pay companies like Facebook and Google for private data about you. Why aren't you paid 
for the private data <laughs> about about you. So imagine that there was a, a safe place, um, we'll just call it a citizen data vault, into which you could place your your private data, like, for example, your, your calendar. And, uh, and let's say that there's a particular place in the world where you like to vacation. You know, maybe it's Italy, maybe it's the Maldives, you know, someplace. Well, there are certain advertisers that may be very interested to know your calendar and your vacation schedule, and they might pay for access just to see to, for what sort of ads they might show to you. And, uh, and so if, if that sort of place existed, well, now suddenly a Facebook and Google, what's the purpose of them they don't have to, they, there's no purpose for them to have your data. Now you can be paid, paid directly. And so what's, what's occurring is that um, technologies like the blockchain hmm. are, uh, because they are generalized ledgers, you know, where there's multiple, multiple copies. And so people can't tamper with the data and every access to that data can be logged. And you can essentially uh, attach smart contracts to that ledger. So that if somebody accesses the data, then you can automatically request a sort of transaction. There can be costs associated for accessing that data. And so there's some belief that uh, technologies like the blockchain will enable a new uh, data marketplace, a private automated data marketplace, so that people can sell their data directly and they can share it with advertisers or not share it with advertisers. And so suddenly they become participants in this sort of uh, global economy. And so now suddenly these third-party data aggregators that are trying to sell you personal data, there's you know, there's, there's less of a reason for them to, to exist. And you may have seen that Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, just recently endorsed a technology called Solid. And, uh, and what does Solid do? It allows you to create what are effectively uh, data vaults. Um, he, they're called, they call them pods. And within these pods, you can place your personal data. And then, you know, things like uh, the sort of things that might be on Facebook or other, other or Google or some of these other uh, sites. And, uh, and then now you can choose who has access to it and who doesn't have, have access to it. Um, this is uh, similar. You may have recalled that there were projects by both Microsoft and Google to create private citizen health vaults or data vaults. Hmm. And, uh, and this is applied, you know, in the same way. And you might have heard that the uh, country of Estonia is uh, the first company, first country, sorry, uh, to um, start to use blockchain as a, uh, they're experimenting with it, to use it as a medical, as, as a medical record storage uh, record. Um, so that, uh, um, basically the blockchain they'll store everyone's records and then they can keep track of changes to those records and uh um and also you know control access as well very interesting a copernican shift uh, it wasn't wasn't um, copernicus burnt at the stake for his beliefs <laughs> I, <laughs> I think history will, will pay out in the end but you know that whole idea I, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea that it's a sort of a mindset shift almost like a reformation in how we think about data and our sort of relationship with it and the organization as well which really has existed to collect and monetize data of some form right you talk about facebook and google who really are data aggregators and then you mentioned solid which is as i understand it data pods or you know private vaults which we would effectively own on the blockchain perhaps maybe something like that so what does that mean for corporations michael what does it mean in the sense of how now you're telling them about exponential data and they're okay we need to be you know data centric we need to focus on data and, and you know 
have that democratized across the the whole organization so everybody can access it and use it and then you're coming in and saying oh by the way you know you're not actually going to own this data in in the long run it's going to be owned by the you know people or the consumers as they're known right so how do we sort of you know get how do do we bring these thoughts together because they can seem at first conflicting yeah, yeah, you can you can sense that sort of dynamic tension there uh, about uh, you know public private uh, you know data ownership. It's this data ownership struggle, and uh, and I think for companies, what this represents is an incredible opportunity. Um, and the example I might give is the telecom industry. If you think about the telecom industry; they have some very private private data. Uh, they know exactly who we're calling. Uh, they know how long we're talking to them. Uh, these people at the other end of the line, and they know where we are. And yet there are some very strong uh, laws and rules about how that data is used. And if you think about it, if you think about companies from a data-centric point of view, so think about Facebook. What is Facebook just from a data point of view? It is essentially a social graph, right? It's a series of pointers of who knows who and you know and how they're how they're connected. Well, if you think about the phone company or the telecom industry, what are they, what sort of data are they sitting on? They're also sitting on a social graph. It's a massive social graph. In fact, if you take a, uh, some of the larger telecom operators of the world, you know, some of these have you know, hundreds of millions of customers worldwide, which means those customers are calling other customers, which means that their social graph that they generate every day is probably as big or bigger than Facebook. Hmm. And so, and yet <clears throat> the challenge is, is that they're not really allowed to peer in and use that data privately, like use it for their own sort of purposes and create their own sort of, there would be a, there would be a privacy backlash if suddenly they were to say, oh, we've created a new Facebook and here's all your friends and all your connections and people can view it, right? There's a, there's a privacy problem there. But um, with this sort of Copernican shift, if, if the, if the, if these industries that own this data, if they take a different view, and if they say, wait a minute, we're sitting on data that's owned by our customers. Now let's put their data into a vault, a data vault, that now the customer owns access to it. So now, so now your entire social graph is in your own private data vault. Maybe it's managed by the telecom company, maybe it's managed by, by you know, some third party that they created. And, uh, and now your entire social graph for your phone connections is available to you. Now, you might not have anything useful that you can do with it yourself, um, but, but maybe there are other companies that would come along and say, hey, we're going to create a non-Facebook Facebook. If you give us access to your social graph, you know, we'll connect to it. Uh, you know, it's completely private. You know, there's no advertising, you know, who knows what the, what the sort of value story is that they could roll out there. Well, now you might grant them access to your, to your particular hmm. data vault with all your sort of phone connections. And, uh, and maybe the company themselves, the AT&T or the, you know, the, you know, you know what all these different telecom operators out there might create their own apps that exist on top of this data and you would grant access to these apps and they could create sort of useful services um, for you, you know, whether it's tracking, you know, your meetings automatically for you and how much time you're on the phone. And, you know, there's a, you, know, you can imagine all sorts of value add um, that could be created, you know, add, I'll, I'll just give you know one example. Imagine if, you know, a system kept track of laughter. 
It's just an AI that recognizes laughter. And every time, you know, someone's laughing, it's going to save that 10 or 20 seconds or 30 seconds of that, uh, of that sort of interaction. Well, hmm. now, at any time, you know, you could go back to any phone conversation in the last, you know, decades and replay those moments. Have you ever, you know, finished a phone call where you thought, oh, what was that joke that person said? Right. Just laughing so hard. Now you'd have a record. It would be searchable, findable. And yet we can't really, you know, we can't really do that today because that data is private. And, uh, and, you know, the companies are bound by all these sort of privacy laws. And yet if they were to just put all that data into your own private citizen data vault, you could share that data with anyone you wanted whenever you wanted. And so you could get this whole bloom of sort of new value-added services yeah. built upon yeah. that um, just based on giving the citizen back ownership of their data. Yeah, I'm searching for analogies. I know you mentioned the vault, so I just want to explore that a little bit. And I guess people want to, you know, be able to put it in a box to understand it a little bit better. And I suppose a vault, a bank account of some sort is that – you know, you own the assets stored in the vault. It could be the cash, it could be the bullion, however it is. But the bank or the vault owner looks after it and holds it for you safely. And, and yet, like you say, people can access that with the API to the, the bank account, if you like, effectively, that the equivalent of a standing order or a direct debit. You can pay a utilities company you know, without having to go in and make the payment yourself in the same way. And if you put that in the context of, say, a medical record, I don't have to go into my filing cabinet at home, dig out my files and get out my, you know, my, my last doctor's medical record and take it to the insurance company, right? It's all there. Yet, you know, the doctor doesn't own that. The insurance company doesn't own that but they can all access it. I'm trying to find an analogy. Is that sort of the nearest we have, like looking at like a bank account with that work? I love, yeah, I, I think that's a great analogy. And, and, I, and just to extend it a little bit further, um, you know, every time we've seen that patients are, or I should say citizens get access and kind of have ownership of their data and then can control, you know, share it and control who has access to it. We've seen this, uh, uh, you know, this sort of proliferation of new value-added services because mm. some of the, some of the innovation barriers like privacy laws and things go away because citizens can share their data with anyone, you know, whoever they want, whenever they want. And so when those innovation barriers go away, you see new apps and new services built on top of them. And it's for this reason that, that some people in the many people in the data space believe that that this is the next platform for innovation, just like the electrical grid, you know, just like, you know, water and gas. The next is these these sort of vaults in which to store data and the ability to share them so that they essentially you know become just like pipes there's data pipes that are around and there are safe ways for the data to flow from one vault to another and to other different places so i mean you, you mentioned for example the parallels with electricity and you know obviously that had a huge impact on society and we're sort of now approaching this next potential seismic shift if you like in innovation and and i guess we're going to experience the quantitative benefits of this, that we're going to you know, access a lot more data and be able to th do things a lot better. And it's going to be a lot more effective and efficient and so on. Yeah, I I'm also interested, and it's often less talked about the qualitative shifts in the sense that, you know, how does this actually change behavior? So, uh, you know, having access to a lot of data it may create innovation. It may um, make customer experiences in many cases a lot more seamless and, and enjoyable. Um, but will that actually change behaviors of corporations as well? I mean, you know, even if you think back to 
in the old days, we called it telecommuting, right? You know, when people used to work from home, like via the telephone or um, and we had the technologies and the internet and so on, enabled all that to happen. That was the sort of the quantitative shift. But then the qualitative shift was it made people start thinking differently about work and about organizations and departments and even like the nine to five and all of that sort of got bundled into that whole conversation. Can you see exponential data having a similar impact in how we think differently about things? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And it's, it's, it's intriguing. The, um, you know, I, there are some subtle, there's some subtle hints about what, how the data might start to affect the world in, uh, in sort of unusual ways that we haven't, haven't really fully, fully anticipated or fully, fully realized. I'll just give you one example. Um, so, um, so we've seen the sort of rise of the wearables world, right? These little devices that we're sort of attaching to our, mm. to our bodies and they're keeping track of how many steps we take, or they're keeping track of our heart rates or, um, you know, there's little glucose sensors you can wear now that will give you glucose readings every 15 minutes. And, uh, um, and, and what's what's interesting is a, a group of researchers in Italy uh, took a bunch of heart rate data on, uh, on you know, the people that were wearing these Fitbit devices, and uh, and then they plotted them on a map of of the city in Italy to see where people's heart rates were rising the most, and they found these little clusters uh, of people's heart rates spiking, and then they discovered that they could use those to predict where car accidents were about to occur. Wow were occurring in the city and so uh so it was clear that there was stressful you know uh, uh traffic conditions and that this led to led to accidents in a sort of predictable way and it suggests that we're moving towards a world where we can start to fuse some of this public private data and and use it in some ways to redesign our cities hmm. um, make them less stressful or to make you know have, have you know sort of work, work towards these sort of um, meta goals that we haven't been able to to reach before or even even begin to tackle i'm sort of just taking a moment to think about the example that you shared with me is that i mean that's that's phenomenal that was, was that by chance that they discovered that do you think you could have designed that in to say okay we're going to do this so we can identify those sort of points within the data map that may lead to let's say something else that we're not thinking about like for example safety within the city and so on i mean it seems yeah. like that that was a byproduct of the research surely no it's a it's a great question i'm not i'm it would be i'd be fascinated to know what the creative spark was that sort of led led them down that, that yeah path. but it also reminds me like the I mean, historically the 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 printing press you know when the when the gutenberg created the printing press he didn't set out to do this to, you know, lay the foundations for modern thought and democracy and everything right. that went in that package. But that that's what happened. And I wonder, you know, we're sitting on the cusp of something like that, that you have access to this data. It's going to change how people think about, you know, not just corporations, but also society and how people interact with each other as well. So it's going to be interesting for sure. I just want to, yeah, I, I mean, just before you go, I mean, I want to ask you just um, one last thing, because I was fascinated by some of the research that you had done recently. And I, I really, and, and if we can indulge a little bit, because this is an area that interests me, um, you've been working on genetic algorithms and, um, you know, using medical, uh, using genetic algorithms to predict medical data. And the reason why that interested me, Michael, is because in, the early 90s, I worked on genetic algorithms back on old mainframe computers. Um, you know, in the old days, taking sort of Chris Langton style bugs and, you know, simulating bugs in an environment looking for food. 
And for those that are listening, a genetic algorithm is basically where you start almost from zero in solving a problem and then, you know, breed lots and lots of different potential solutions to it, like, you know, evolution has done until you get sort of, you know, a more of a local maximum and, you know, a solution that kind of works. And but but even back then, you know, it the, theoretically it made sense, but the computing power was so germane back then. You know, you would run a simulation and then go for lunch and come back, and it's like you know we're on the second generation of bugs at this stage. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm looking at where we are now, and I'm, I'm very jealous of anybody in that space who has the kind of computing power. But you know, I think the interesting thing about genetic algorithms they've sort of taken a back seat in the whole sort of exponential data and. AI and machine learning debate because they just haven't had the power to be realized. And I wonder now that we have those kind of data sets, that we have the computational power, what that could potentially create as a, you know, in terms of the kind of tool sets that we're going to have available to us in the near future. It's, it's really incredible. The progress that's, that's been made. I mean, for you're exactly, it was my observation as well that, um, that there just wasn't enough computing power. And uh, and yet you can see now today already Google and others have started to announce that they're now using uh, evolutionary approaches for AIs to essentially design other AIs. They're essentially evolving different neural network topologies. Hmm. And then those, uh, you know, the most successful topologies live and breed with the with the other successful ones and the unsuccessful ones die. And uh, and as Moore's law keeps doubling that computational power and we keep creating more computational fabric, it, it extends the amount of these sort of uh, artificial entities that we can simulate. And it's pretty it's pretty remarkable because if you think about it. Uh, you know, evolution and these evolutionary computational approaches can scale to use all the computing power that we have. If you have just a little bit of computing power, well, you simulate sort of a field of wildebeests, you know, like a certain number. Mm. And then as you get more computational power, well, now you simulate a continent worth. And eventually, as the com computational power increases, well, now you simulate an earth, um, you know, the size of the earth and eventually the size of the, you know, uh, an entire universe worth of computation sort of evolving the best sort of uh, neural network topologies or creatures or, you know, things with skill. And, uh, and, it, and it, you probably saw there was an interview with Elon Musk. And this is, you know, well, let me take a step back. People might say, well, what are the sort of things that you could evolve in these simulated spaces? And the answer is, well, almost anything we see that's been evolved today. Exactly. And, um, and, and so this is, you may have seen the interview with Elon Musk where he said, you know, odds are a billion to one, we're living in a simulation. And, uh, and it's you know, because we're that close ourselves to creating that sort of compelling world. So it, uh, it does, it does give a glimpse of, you know, where we can go with all this computing power and what, what that might hold for us in the future. Absolutely. I mean, bringing that round, I guess one of the, the questions people like to ask, especially from the healthcare side is, you know, when will, and if it will ever replace a doctor? Because that's, you know, that, that's the question that people ask is that, you know, th there's a deeper discussion about machine general intelligence and so on. But th there are many tasks a doctor does, right, which can be replaced because they're very sort of, you know, narrow band tasks, for example. But, you know, just on that, I, I know it's sort of a very generic question, a bit of an ambush. But if you can help us out here, because people will ask this. And they're going to ask you in Singapore as well. You know, I'm an MD. Will I be replaced by a machine? <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'll, tell, I'll, give one, I'll give one example of that. Um, and I think it's, or what tell one story that I think is, is kind of telling. And that is, um, so some years ago, it was, um, I guess, about a decade, almost two ago, I was talking to a cardiologist. And he was responsible, electrophysiologist. He was responsible for reading every EKG for three different hospitals. And, uh, um, and it, it, there's a MUSE system, it's called, which is a system that reads the diagnosis, it essentially reads the EKG and writes a diagnosis on the EKGs. We've had it around for decades, uh, and it, you know, it's improved over those decades, but it's, but it's there on basically every EKG machine out there. And this was, you know, some 10 years ago. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, well, how, how often is the, uh, is the MUSE system wrong? And, uh, or how often is it right? And he's like, he said, well, it's right pretty much all the time. Like I maybe one in a, you know, 500, you know, maybe one in a thousand times it's wrong. And, uh, and yet, you know, he every day would look at the EKG, you know, make the diagnosis himself, look at the computer diagnosis. Yep. That's correct. Check $250. Hmm. Look at the next one. Check $250. Check $250. And so <laughs> he, he essentially, the human was still in the loop. And this has been going on for, for decades and decades. Now that sort of reimbursement rate may change, you know, into the future. But, uh, but, um, but as far as we can see, we, you know, we feel comfortable with humans in the loop. He, he actually did save, you know, you know, one in a hundred or one in a, you know, a thousand or one in 500 yeah. or whatever the rate was, he was catching those and, and fixing those. And, uh, and so there was still value add. Um, but so one sort of belief is that we'll, we'll just kind of, these computers will just become more co-pilots. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll phrase it this way. It's been estimated that there are 2 billion people worldwide who in the course of their lives will never see a doctor. And yet a billion of those people already have cell phones. Hmm. And the next billion are supposed to expect it to come online in the next five to 10 years. So many people believe that the way that will reach those people in healthcare is through their, through their cell phones. Well, if you think about the role of sort of AI, what, what this means, some people are saying that the real challenge we face in healthcare is that there's no shortage of patients. That really the challenge of healthcare over the next decade is how do we scale our doctors today hmm. to see not just 10 times as many patients, but maybe 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 times more patients than they're seeing. And you can see if AI is fixing, is serving as a co-pilot, looking, reading all these EKGs and throwing up the ones that it's not sure about, and the doctor is looking at those, suddenly you can see how a single cardiologist could serve, you know, 100 times or 1,000 times more patients. And so I think there will always be, at least for the foreseeable future, a role for, for humans in this. Um, but these AIs will serve as a co-pilot in a, in a rather substantial way. So we can begin to give hope to those 2 billion people who might not have yeah, the, the way you talk about it is, it, you know, the doctors really are the the unscalable part of the 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 solution, right? I mean, effectively, they there is a limited amount of them. Yet, as you said, there's a, a seemingly unlimited amount of patients or people with healthcare issues. So, you know, how do you scale that? And the co-pilots can fly planes as well, I guess. You know, that's the point, isn't it? On their own, they're just, you know, they're they're earning their wings. So. It's a matter of time, I guess. I, I, you know, the, the last thing I want to ask, really, and is that there's always that argument, isn't there, that made that, and I think it was um, Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers is making the, the argument about, you know, for a firefighter to go into a scene, for example, or I, I, I can't remember which book it was, but if a firefighter went into a scene or, um, and he walked into a high pressure, you know, environment where he had to make a decision where a house was burning down. They walked into the 
the house. They couldn't identify what the problem was, but they were standing in the, the, the ground floor of the house, but they said he told all his men to get out and he didn't know why exactly. He couldn't put his finger on it and said, look, I could identify what the input factors were. But when they reviewed the case, they found out the actual, the fire was in the basement, but it was sort of that, you know, how, how do you sort of quantify that? It was a gut instinct reaction made about seeing thousands and thousands of patterns I guess, you know, maybe that can be quantified, but you know, the fact is, is that a bit of instinct, is that then something a machine can do? Cause I guess that would be a case you're saying with, you know, doctors that actually you can't replace those 10% cases where, you know, maybe a bit of human magic as quote unquote might actually be required. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely suggests that there's a, there's an, there's an intuitive role there. And, uh, and the also the other, the other pieces that we often notice with these AIs that there's brittle edges, there's these little brittle edges, and it's all very hard to predict where those and and root out where those brittle edges are, and uh, and so the you know the computer the human will be there to sort of catch catch it when it when it falls or when it when it fails, and uh, yeah, good. It's a partnership. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, fascinating walk through the world of exponential data. I think we've sort of seen all sides of it. And um, I mean, you know, if, if I'm listening to this this conversation, and I'm going to watch your presentation when you, you come here to Singapore as well. And, you know, listeners as well, I'm sure will be looking forward to that. If I want to understand more about exponential data, where where do I start with that? Where are those? Because there's so much data in itself to take on board. It can be a bit overwhelming. You know, what are the easy ins to that? You know, the stories that I should be paying attention to, the case studies, and so on. Yeah, yeah. The um, I, I think that um, you know, singularityhub.com. I hate to, you know, drop a a plug for the university, but uh, I think they do a, a great job of sort of surveying where the exponentials are. And although it covers, you know, energy and health and and all these other other areas, I'm really uh, pleased with the sort of editors there and what they what they sort of comb out in the sort of exponential space and data is one of the one of the areas where they begin talking as well or the, one of the areas that they cover so it's definitely a, a good first stop excellent starting point we'll put all the details in the show notes that is dr michael gillam everybody ceo of health labs he will be here in singapore looking forward to that very much michael thank you so much for your time today thanks so much Graham. i really appreciate it, it was great